Typically, I like to jump right into the content of the episode. I feel like every YouTube channel, blog, even recipes you find online, podcasts, they all have this long, drawn-out introduction. I end up having to skip the first five minutes. So I want to get away from that. I want to go right into the content. But for this episode, I have to do a small introduction. Because last episode, I said at the end that this episode would be the final episode of part one. Um, of the French Bastards Part 1. But that did not end up happening. And I read three books to do for the last, the last episode. I read Nightmares of an Ether Drinker, Masks of the Tapestry, and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, with every intention to do a, a review episode on one of them. But uh, I was not drawn one way or the other with any of those books it's not that I didn't like them or it's not that I hated them because I have every intention of doing reviews on books that I hate or don't like or do like or whatever it's just that I had nothing to say about them and the whole point of this podcast was I wanted somewhere where I could talk about books that I wanted to talk about and with the first two they're both Jean Laurent books and I love him and I like the books but there's nothing that I haven't already said in last episodes about it. He had the same writing style. They were short story books, so it's not like I can review the plot. There's like 20 or 30 short stories per book, so what do you want me to do? Go over the plot of 20 short stories? Uh, not going to happen. And with 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, um, I liked the book fine. I just didn't have anything to say about it. And every time I sat down to take my notes for an episode, I ended up just recanting the plot. And I don't want to do that. You don't want to do that, so it didn't happen. So we're on to part two. And part two is, as you can probably already tell from the title, Magical Realism, uh, which is something I have very little experience with reading. So the books that I'm going to read for this part, for the vast majority of them, I have not read them before. There's one that I want to do an episode on that I've read. Other than that, I haven't read them. And the plan is, I'm just going to do part two until October 1st. So I have no you know, set number of episodes I want to do. I'm just going to do magical realism uh, until it's October. And then I will announce part three. Um, but anyways, episode one is we're doing this book called Epitaph of a Small Winner written by Machado de Assis. And I had never read this book. I never read anything by this author. So it was a new th- experience for me. And when I started this pod and literary journey, I fully expected to read some modernist masterpieces um, and masterpieces of all sort. You know, if I do a part about the history of philosophy, I'm going to read some Plato. If I do American classics, I'm going to read Moby Dick. So somewhere along the way, I'm going to read some modernist masterpieces. But I did not expect to read a modernist masterpiece that was written in 1880. And when I started reading this book, I had no idea. I started reading Epitaph of a Small Winner. And judging solely by the prose and the kooky, non-linear narrative structure, I assumed it was written probably in the last 20 years, or 50, 60 years at most. So about halfway through, I did a little bit of research on the book, and I read that it was written in 1880. I thought I was reading about the wrong book. I had to look up another whole article. Uh, But there it goes. It was written in 1880. It's very unorthodox for its time. And by the way, this book is 200 pages, and it's 160 chapters. That's something I have never encountered before. Um, Very unorthodox. But I loved it. It reminds me of reading Nietzsche and his 
aphorisms and his short chapters in his books, too. Anyways, the first thing to note is that this book is uh, way ahead of its time, and it holds up very well to time. And that's not to say you can't enjoy books that are over 100 years old or that there are no good books from from the 1800s. It's just that one way or another, you can usually tell that it was written 100 plus years ago. So the author, uh, Machado de Assis, was Brazilian. So the book was originally written in Portuguese. And while the English title of the book is Epitaph of a Small Winner, the direct translation of the original Portuguese title is The Posthumous Memoirs of Bras Cubas, which is a way more undeviating summary of the plot of the book itself. So the narrator of the book is Bras Cubas, who uh, in the book he was this low-level aristocrat of some sort in Brazil, and he essentially is narrating his life from beginning to end. So a memoir. Um, But the twist being that the book is being narrated from the grave. That's where you get the posthumous memoirs of Bras Cubas. So essentially the narrator has died, uh, and this is his post-mortem, post-mortal self uh, writing a memoir. So he has this detached, unemotional narration style, which, because he is now freed from the chains of the living, so everything uh, from greed, ambition, envy, jealousy, caring about his own social status, they no longer affect him because he's dead. And that's where the, the magical part of magical realism kicks in, because, you know, we all know the dead don't talk, and they certainly do not write memoirs. But the rest of the plot is for the most part, largely realistic fiction. Um, But you get the sense that Kubas is largely disappointed with, well, disappointed is not the right word because he assures us repeatedly that he has no sentimentalities from the grave at all. Uh, So he's not even capable of feeling disappointment. But his life was more or less boring. And his life philosophy is pretty pessimistic. You live and you die, and for the most part, uh, for most of us, nothing too crazy happens. In his life, his highs were minor and his lows were minor. He didn't change the world. He didn't change anyone's life in any significant way. Um, But that's how it was. And the entertainment part of the book comes from, in my opinion, the the charisma and the charm of uh, the narrator. Who is, you know, as if you can't tell, he's not this jump-off-the-page, bougalant, cartoon type of character, but he is uh, perfectly relatable. For all this faults and pessimism, there's a charm and humor that I found very appealing. Some people who read books for heroes and villains will not agree, but I liked Kubas. He's, you know, they assisted a good job of making a relatable character, I think. And once again, we have that ironic sense of humor, which I'm drawn to. In his reflections on his happenings and his life in general, uh, As I get older, I'm drawn more and more to this idea of tragic comedy. I don't know if it's that I understand it more now, or maybe I've just grown too pessimistic, and this stuff appeals to me. But regardless, it seems like I like that tragic comedy. If I had read this 10 years ago, the pessimism would have bummed me out, or maybe I just would not have understood the tragic side of the comedy. But I see the ironic humor in it now, and it just... It scratches that itch for me the same way Welbeck does. I remember thinking as a kid, like dark chocolate, bitter chocolate, bittersweet, why not just sweet? But I think as we get older, we understand the nuance, or at 
at the very least, we have a more lucid understanding of reality as it is. The first line of the entire book is, to the first worm that gnawed my flesh. That's page one. As in, he's dedicating this book to the first worm that gnaws his flesh post-mortem. And that's how you set the tone early. And later on, Deus more explicitly touches on the tragic comedy element of his writing, or perhaps the comedic tragedy that is Epitaph of a Small Winner in this little paragraph that I bookmarked. Quote, "'Tis good to be sad and say nothing. I remember that I was sitting under a tamarind tree with the poet's book, he's talking about Shakespeare, with the poet's book open in my hands and my spirit as crestfallen as a sick chicken. I pressed my silent grief to my breast and experienced a curious feeling, something that might be called the voluptuousness of misery." voluptuousness of misery. Memorize the phrase, store it away, take it out and study it from time to time. And if you do not succeed in understanding it, you may conclude that you have missed one of the most subtle emotions of which man is capable. End quote. Ah, uh, yes, voluptuousness of misery, very subtle. Uh, but it's true. I mean, he's not wrong. And that's the tone that he carries throughout the book. He has this kind of aloof and detached manner of writing that I've found I mean, it's not only funny, but it's disarming. So he can approach more serious and or cerebral topics like literature, death, love and lust, politics, the afterlife or a lack thereof, poetry, careers, marriage, all this type of stuff. He can approach it without being so sober and heavy handed. And he does discuss all these topics, by the way. I'm not just listing things off the top of my head, but that's essentially the subplot. So you're reading this memoir with some escapades and he tells tales and reflections, but you're also getting into the headspace of Kubas himself without him barking at you to go there. It's, he's kind of leading you there like a little dance. And in my opinion, it's hard to reflect on things like death because you have basically two routes, uh, being somber or being comedic. And usually if you take the comedic approach, it's just shock value, and you're trying to get a rise out of people. And Deasis does a really good job navigating this hard task of reflecting on death without being a doomer, without looking for shock, something I certainly could not do if I chose to write. One vision I had while thinking about this book um, after reading it was the sheer mass appeal that the book can have. I don't mean it's like a pop fiction book that you should just mindlessly read it. It's like you can read this book mindlessly on the beach and enjoy the tales and the characters and the subtle humor and nuance, but it's also very grounded in actual literature and literary history and world history and prose. So I think about it like this. From a very zoomed-out view, it's an enjoyable book for a casual reader. There are fun, crazy passages. The narrator's charming, and it's funny. If you zoom in a little bit, it can appeal to an audience like myself, people who enjoy colorful prose. You can analyze the narration style that's unorthodox. And it makes you think about what the hell you're doing here on Earth while you're alive. And if you're interested in unique writing styles, you'll like it. If you zoom in even more, it's like you can write entire essays. I'm sure there's been books written about the underlying philosophy, about Deasis critique of other philosophies of his time in Brazil about all the he makes all these allusions to artists writers and historical figures in the book that pretty much go by the wayside for casual or hobby readers including myself a lot of the philosophy went over my head so I can't even talk about it here but 
someone who's deeper into that kind of stuff than I am, um, the book can be enjoyed by them. So that's what I mean by mass appeal. And not too many, well, uh, relatively few Americans and Western readers by and large have heard of or read Epitaph. But in Brazil, it's apparently huge. And uh, Machado de Assis is a hero to them. And they read it in school and they have a statue of him and everything. And now I know why, because it's very difficult, near impossible to come across these books that have unique style. They can be enjoyed by scholars and laymen alike. It's it's a game changer even today. So just imagine in 1880 and from 1880 until today. Uh, it's a very formulative piece of work and for good reason. So I wanted to read some lines from a part in the book where the narrator, Brasco Boss, kind of goes mad crazy for a bit. And he goes on this uncanny psychedelic trip where he's riding on this hippo backwards in time and he sees the evolution of man but in reverse and eventually he ends up at the beginning of time and he finds this godlike matriarch and it's the most exciting thing that that happens to Kubas in his life and in the book and it's not even close but I'm going to trim out some of the passage uh, but I'll give you the dialogue between Kubas and this matriarch So she's approached by Kubas, and she greets him saying, They call me Nature or Pandora. I am your mother and your enemy. Do not be afraid, she said. My enmity does not kill. It is through life that it affirms itself. You are alive. I wish you no other calamity. Am I alive? Yes, worm, you are alive. You have not yet lost that tattered cloak of which you are so proud. You will taste for a few hours more the bread of pain and the wine of misery. You are alive. Even though you have gone mad, you are alive. And, if your consciousness regains a moment of lucidity, you will say that you want to live. Do you understand me? No, I replied. Nor do I wish to understand you. You are an absurdity, a fable. I am surely dreaming. Or, if in truth I have gone mad, you are nothing but a psychopath's figment, a vain and empty thing which reason, being absent, cannot govern. You? Nature? The nature that I know is mother only and not enemy. She does not make of life a scourge, nor does she wear such a face indifferent as the tomb. And why Pandora? Because I carry in my bag all good things and all evils, and the most remarkable of all, hope, man's consolation. Are you trembling? Yes, the way you look at me. I know, for I am not only life, I am also death, and you are soon to give me back what I loaned you. Come, my great lecher. The voluptuousness of extinction awaits you. Such a cool passage. So epic. Literally epic. Uh, he likes that word voluptuousness, doesn't he? I didn't even notice that when I was doing notes for this episode. I'll have to add voluptuousness to my lexicon. But that, po- that passage spoke to me for a couple of reasons. One, it's a totally outlandish sequence of events. He's riding a hippo backwards through time and having this interface with the demigod or supreme being. So it's a cool ride to go on in a sense, but also the dialogue itself. I've said before on this pod that I'm a sucker for unique and idiosyncratic prose and that, uh, you know, that's my number one thing that I like in books. Uh, And this is like distilled word ether. It's basically poetry and it's held up so well over time. So I had to tip my hat. It's very impressive. And you're also seeing what I was talking about uh, before, like this undercurrent of philosophy. So while we have this avatar of Mother Nature or Mother Earth, there is some philosophizing about the nature of nature. 
And I'd like to hear what a well-read philosophy hobbyist or student or whatever would say about this passage. But my takeaway is that Kubas is supposed to be like an avatar for mankind and mankind's all too optimistic approach to nature. That nature is, like he said, a mother only and not an enemy. And then nature, uh, Pandora, itself says that it gives the gift of life and also doles out the gift of death. And that mankind has all these delusions about what it is to be alive. Uh, chiefly that they're maniacally driven by the instinct to just stay alive. Uh, hope, man's consolation. And that to me was a central theme of Epitaph as a book. So you get that insight to the kind of pessimistic approach uh Kubas is originally optimistic about life, but now you get an insight about what it's all about. Uh, whatever you make of it, it's a really sublime passage. And the book is like littered with similar passages. None quite as bizarre or otherworldly as this one, but there's something interesting happening on the surface, and then there's something interesting happening metaphysically. And it's painted up in this uh, fun and colorful writing style. It all combines to make a very impressive work. I was talking to my girlfriend recently about when someone asks, is this book good? Uh, how hard of a question that is to answer. Because good obviously means different things to different people. And I think that you have to map books on the spectrum that has several parameters. Uh, the parameters being like main plot, subplot, mood, enjoyability, meaning, writing style. So, for example, like a book like Lolita, which is about a pedophile abducting this uh, young girl, uh, the author does a superb job of conveying this mood of unease and trepidation. There are beautifully crafted passages of cool writing and with wordplay, but is it enjoyable in the same way that Harry Potter is enjoyable? Uh, no. Uh, Jules Verne, I read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Jules Verne books are plot-heavy, character-heavy adventure works, but is there sufficient deeper meaning or impressive prose? Not really, in my opinion. Uh, but Epitaph, it checks all the boxes. It's got plot, subplot, changing in moods. It gives you enough to think about. It's fun read. It's a perfectly well-rounded book. And I'll, I'll go as far as to say it's the best one I've, the best book I've read since I started this podcast. Uh, so let's have a drink to that. What have I concocted today? I've actually been drinking this throughout the whole episode. Um, so I wanted to come up with something, like I said at the beginning, something that struck me about this book was it was written 140 years ago, and it holds up today perfectly well. It's better. It's more modern than a lot of modern novels are. So I wanted to have a drink that people enjoyed back in the 1800s and that people still drink today. But I also wanted to uh, have something well-rounded, not just a one-ingredient thing. I wanted, you know, all types of different flavors. The way I was saying that there's plot, subplot, meaning, philosophy, blah, 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 all that. So what I decided on is an old-fashioned, which if you know me, it's like my favorite drink. It's pretty much the only thing I drink. Which makes sense, because this is my favorite book that I've read uh, so far. Uh, but they used to, you know, it's called Old Fashioned, so you know they enjoyed it back in the day. And people still drink it now, a bunch of my friends drink them. Um, and it's well-rounded in the sense that, I mean, obviously the main ingredient is whiskey, uh, bourbon, or rye. But there's also, I put in Pace Shaw's Bitters, which is like cherry-based, 
orange bitters. I put in Amaro. Uh, I put in an ice cube, if you want to count that as an ingredient. But to me, it's a well-rounded drink. And, and I do it with all different types of whiskeys and rice, so you get all these different flavors. But I just thought Old Fashioned was perfect, perfectly matched with this book. It was enjoyed a long time ago. It's enjoyed today. It's an awesome drink. It's an awesome book. Uh, read this book. It's epic. Uh, so the next book I'm going to do is Murakami's A Wild Sheep Chase. Some tunes for your time. Where do the hound dogs eat when the people are thrilled? And where does the smoke from your